Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Gender Now and Then, Critical Theory versus the Judeo-Christian Tradition. Please welcome Dr. Jay Richards, Director of the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. Well, it's great to see all of you this morning. Uh, welcome to those of you that are watching live stream as well. I have been really excited about this event, honestly, for months. Very often here in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of consternation over questions related to gender and sex, in part because most of us don't know how those terms relate, and, and one seems to be used in one way and another in, in another way. The other thing about this issue is that people assume the debate is an entirely religious one. I had someone yesterday say, um, how would I defend the idea that there's a male and female without appealing to the Bible? And I said, well, you could appeal to a biology textbook, right? It's not like this is a sectarian question. Uh, that's true. At the same time, uh, the intellectual traditions of the West do have something to speak to this issue. And in fact, our understanding explicitly or implicitly on these issues uh, depends a lot on the philosophical and theological traditions. That's why I was so excited about these two new books, uh, both of which treat uh, the question of gender and the current debate in its wider Christian context. And these books came out, uh, one's just out and one's actually going to be out at the end of the month. And we are privileged to have the authors of both of these. And so uh, I'm, the plan is I'm going to introduce them and then they're going to just give some brief remarks based upon their ideas, not lectures, just remarks off the cuff. Uh, and then we're going to have a conversation for the vast bulk of the hour, but we will leave a lot of time for both online questions and in-person questions. So if you're in person here, just look for a mic and raise your hands. If you're online, you can submit your questions and we have someone looking for those. So let me introduce my two guests. First is John Grabowski, PhD. John's an ordinary professor of moral theology and ethics at the Catholic University of America here in Washington, DC. He and his wife were appointed to the Pontifical Council for the Family by Pope Benedict XVI in the fall of 2009, where they served as a member couple. He served two terms as a theological advisor to the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, and Youth, and one term as an advisor to the subcommittee that produced the pastoral letter, Marriage, Love, and Life of the Divine Plan in 2009. He's the author of the brand new book, Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Difference. He and his wife, Claire, have five children, six grandchildren, and they reside in the Archdiocese of Washington, DC. Abigail Favalli, PhD, is the Dean of Humanities and Professor of English at George Fox University. Her award-winning work has appeared in The Atlantic, First Things, Church Life, and various literary and academic journals. Her memoir, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion, was published in 2018. Her new book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, will be released at the end of this month. Abigail lives in Oregon with her husband and four children. Please join me in welcoming John Grabowski and Abigail Favalli to the stage. Thank you, Jay, and my thanks to the Heritage Foundation for the invitation to be here this morning. 
33 years ago, I was a graduate student in search of a dissertation topic. And casting about a bit, I hit upon the idea of doing a dissertation on sexual difference and Catholic thought, kind of a survey of post-Vatican II Catholic thought, everything from feminist thought through John Paul II. Um, and I, I wrote that dissertation, um, found it really interesting, important. But when I came to start working at CUA um, 31 years ago, I was told, don't worry about publishing your dissertation. That won't help you get tenure. Um, focus on doing other kinds of publications. So I put it aside. Although I've continued to think about and write about that topic over the years, coming back to and kind of publishing my dissertation research, updating it, has always been on my to-do list. But over the last 10 years or so, watching the culture literally unravel in so many ways here on this set of issues um, with the Obergefell decision, with the Bostock decision, the court, um, but also especially the experience of talking to bishops, both here in the United States, but in 2015 I was at the Synod on Family in, in Rome, and talking to bishops from around the world and hearing from them the impact of gender ideology on their diocese, on their countries and their people, and hearing from them, you know, we've been hearing these warnings from the church, but we need more. We need to know what this thing is, where it comes from, and what, how, to, how to argue against it, how to offer a more compelling, a more beautiful alternative to our culture. Um, and so that kind of lit a fire um, in me, and I realized that, you know, the, the topic, it was important back then, it's urgent now. So I set myself to kind of revisiting and reworking some of, some of that research. And so the book, Unraveling Gender, what I tried to do is take a look and answer some of those questions that the bishops at the 2015 Synod posed to me. What is gender ideology? The separation of gender from both the body and sex and particularly the idea that gender is a self-articulated reality. Um, it's not just something as mid-20th century existentialist thought held that we kind of are, is articulated for us by the culture, but no, with postmodern thought, it's something that we simply decide upon and project, which is how we can get 70 plus genders on Facebook or 100 plus <coughs> genders being debated at the United Nations and human rights treaties, right? Um, and then a look at what that set of ideas is kind of doing in our culture, to our language, to our law, to our public policy, to the, the rights of women in public life um, and protections for women, legal and other kinds of protections for women's athletics um, and women's safety in public spaces. But then tracing a little bit of the, the intellectual genealogy. Where does this come from? Um, it's kind of a, uh, there's kind of a witch's brew of modern atheistic philosophy that's, that feed into it in different ways. I, I've mentioned existentialism and postmodernity. Marxism plays a role. Ultimately, I do think the deepest roots of this um, set of ideas, this toxic set of ideas, is in ancient Gnosticism, um, a philosophy, a, re a religious ideology that holds that the material world and with it the body and sexual reproduction is something evil, 
something to be overcome, something to be escaped from. And salvation can only happen with the secret gnosis teaching that only Gnostic teachers can provide um, and with a quasi-ascetic set of practices. Um, so there's a little bit of the intellectual genealogy that's, that those ideas have been propelled out into our culture by three major shifts that we've undergone in the last centuries or so. The industrial, and are still feeling the ongoing effects of, the industrial revolution, the sexual revolution, and the <coughs> ongoing expansion of technology. Um, and each of those kind of contributes to both the fracturing of the family, but with it the fracturing of personal identity, our sense of who we are. I'm, Mary Eberstadt, I think, argues very effectively in some of her work that the question of our time is, who am I? And identity politics is, in a sense, a chance to, uh, an effort to try to answer that question in a particular way. Among that swirling set of factors, I think two of the most key factors are, one, the dissociation of fertility, the, the ability to give new life as a man or as a woman from our conception of marriage and sex, right? So if, if fertility is not important, then the question of my, what is my body, what does it mean, what is it for, and it's being male or female becomes undirected, unhinged. It can swing in any direction. And I think that's what we've seen in the culture. Um, the other thing that I think is really driving uh, this set of ideas is the idea that technology enables us to write a new identity for ourselves. We do this in a virtual world all the time. We create virtual identities and we alter them at will, right? And that breeds the idea that our identity is something, again, it's malleable, it's, it's self-created, it's something that can be altered. Gender ideology tells people that if you feel unhappy in your own skin, you are unhappy with who you are, and gender dysphoria is real, and it, some people really do suffer. But what it purports to do is offer a very technologized medical solution for what is at root a set of psychological issues. So it's the wrong therapy for the problem, and it leaves people very often with deeper psychological and physiological hurt. So. The last part of the book tries to say, well, where do we go? Um, scripture, I think, and science, as Jay alluded to, give us a better picture of what our bodies mean and what how sexuality fits into them, how sexual difference fits into them. And what those two realities point us toward is that our bodies are not a screen on which to project an identity, which can then be changed and altered through medical invasive and harsh medical technologies. Our body is a window into who we are as persons. Our body is the visible expression of who we are as persons. But our body is also a compass. Our bodies are a compass that point us toward our origin in the love of God and point us toward our fulfillment, which is in giving ourselves as male or female in love to others to God and to other human beings. But to read that compass rightly, to navigate by it well, we need the further data that both science and scripture can give us. So 
when we read the body in that way, we come to understand our bodies and their sexually differentiated character fundamentally as gift. So thank you for your, for your attention this morning. I'm gonna start with a grad school anecdote as well, actually. So I have a master's degree in women's writing and gender theory, and then I also did a PhD in English, but my focus was feminist literary criticism and women's writing. So back in the early 2000s, I was sitting in a graduate school seminar, and we were reading a lot of post-structuralist philosophy, folks like Derrida, Foucault, Levinas, and we were discussing this in a small seminar setting. We were reading some, I can't remember whether it was Derrida or Levinas, honestly, but in this essay, um, the author, who is male, was stepping into the discursive space that is woman and writing as a woman. And we were discussing this idea, and what was interesting to me now is that in this very secular setting, um, in a graduate school setting that was very much focused on feminist theory and gender theory, everyone was in agreement that, look, you just can't do that. Okay? You can't just decide as a man to step into the space of a woman. Like, a woman is not just a space. Um, but what's interesting now is that, fast forward, you know, 15 years, and I'm sure that that discussion would be quite different because our culture has decided that no, in fact, um, a, what woman is, is just a construct that anyone can appropriate for, for himself or herself. So what has happened in the last 15 years? What are the roots of this? Um, about eight years ago, I had uh, a kind of sudden and disorienting conversion to Catholicism after being immersed in this postmodern feminist world for a long time. And that created a really significant worldview shift, as you can probably imagine. And for the first few years of being a Catholic, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I gonna, you know, I got my doctorate in BS, like what am I gonna do with myself now? And, um, and but it's actually been really helpful because I've been in, I've been inside that worldview and I, I'm able now to, to look at it um, and honestly, like, try to do it with charity and try to figure out, okay, what, what is really being said here? Um, and, then, and then to help articulate that for people um, who, who are outside the academy. So this, my latest book, The Genesis of Gender, is my attempt to really bring that expertise and insider knowledge I have and to really give a substantive but also accessible account of how the concept of gender has developed um, over the past 100 years or so, how we've gotten to the... Um, gender bedlam that we're currently in, and um, then also to compare what I call that gender paradigm with the Genesis paradigm, which is that offered by the, the Christian tradition. Um, so the book itself, the Genesis of Genders, has kind of a double meaning because I first trace the genesis of gender in the sense of how that concept developed, and very much like John mentioned, I talk about existentialist philosophy. I also talk about the work of psychologist John Money, which is a very harrowing story. He was the first person in the 1950s to, to coin the term gender role, and so he kind of borrowed what was essentially a linguistic term and began to apply it to this idea that what we think of as masculinity and femininity, man and woman, are actually socially constructed. And then from his research, that concept of gender really took hold in second wave feminist theory and then became entrenched in the academy, especially in humanities and the social sciences. And then in the 80s and 90s, 
um, Judith Butler, the, her work that is, that is really based on the work of Michel Foucault and is fundamentally anti-realist, um, she began to suggest that gender is, not only is gender a social construct, but actually biological sex itself is a social construct. So that was a step that has become, um, has become very influential. So she, she you ha in second wave feminism, you had this traditional sex gender split where sex refers to what is biological, gender refers to the kind of social and cultural expressions of biological reality, and that's socially shaped and culturally shaped. Well, then Judith Butler says, well, yes, that's true about gender, but that's also true about sex. Um, that what we, what we interpret and categorize as a sexual binary is in fact just a, a maneuver of power. Um, and it, any categorization or meaning that we project onto the world is ultimately a creation of human beings. Um, so that's how, that's one big step in this, so I don't wanna go too much into the weeds now. Um, but that brings us to where we are now, where there's this, there's this interesting reification turn that's happening because the, the concept of gender and the gender paradigm is fundamentally anti-realist, but then it makes assertions that are very much assertions about what is real. So when you hear the term sex is a spectrum or trans women are women, those are, those are very bold claims about what is real. So there's an anti-realism underneath that allows, allows us to kind of uproot the understandings of these words, but then the new meanings are asserted as real because let's be honest, most people aren't anti-realists. <laughs> That's not what's natural to human beings and our response to the world. Um, so there's kind of a, a, a shift that's happening or a, a bait and switch. Then um, in the latter part of my book, the genesis of gender is in that, meant in that second way is describing what gender is according to divine revelation in the Christian tradition and relying heavily on Genesis, the first three or four chapters, which is just a gold mine. I mean, there's there these tiny concentrated compact texts, but rich with such meaning and beauty about what it means to be men and women. And I'm arguing that this is a creation story and ancient creation narratives, cosmologies are fundamentally about disclosing identity and purpose. They're not primarily about you know, the scientific origins of the world, et cetera. And so in that way, Genesis still speaks the truth about where we come from, who we are, and what our ultimate purpose is. And so I contrast the gender paradigm with the Genesis paradigm on multiple levels, um, such as who's doing the creating, right? There's the self-creation versus the being a creature and what, how that matters. Um, there's this idea of reality as a construct as opposed to reality as a gift. And there's the, an idea of sexual difference on this side as a fiction versus sexual difference is actually part of God's self-revelation, part of his disclosure to human beings. There's a wildly different views of the body. The body is this lifeless object, this, this tool, this instrument, completely under our control. And the idea of the body as a sacrament that reveals is always speaking the truth about who we are, always speaking the truth about our personhood. We don't have to force the body to speak the truth about who we are. It's always already doing that. Very different understandings of language, which I think is super interesting. Um, what, what language is and does in the world? Does it 
again, project or create truth, or does it actually try to correspond or express truth that's inherent in the world? Um, and then also freedom. What does freedom look like? Is freedom just transgression, pushing past boundaries, upsetting, blurring limits? Or is freedom actually an ever-increasing ever sense of belonging in discovering how in integrated we are with the natural world, with the cosmos, um, and, and also the, the divinely created order? Thank you. Well, good stuff. And I have to say, I should have showed you my questions because you both Ooh. answered about half of my questions in your opening remarks. I, I feel vindicated that I think I, I understood the gist of your book, though, that when you boil it down. Um, and so there's so much to talk about. But uh, Abigail, your book is, is much more autobiographical than John's is, in a sense. Um, and so I'm gonna, I, I want to ask you about that. But I want to talk, the one thing that's autobiographical that you mentioned, John, is that this was, in general, the subject of your, your dissertation, low these many more than 30 years ago. I don't know exactly, okay, so a ways back. But, um, and so a lot of people that are just becoming aware of this issue, you know, we can call it gender ideology or whatever it is, um, they feel like it's a brand new thing. But you were writing a dissertation on this over 30 years ago. And so obviously there's some perennial themes that have been percolating for a while. Uh, but I would assume also that there are some things that have changed since you wrote your dissertation, since this book just came out. So what, what, what are the things that, that you would say are different uh, now than when you wrote the dis dissertation? Oh, great question, Jay. And I think Abigail answered part of uh, your question in her remarks. Um, I think when I wrote um, and when I engaged feminist thinking about gender, it was still largely kind of the standard second wave feminist idea that gender is this social construct that we inhabit and are socialized into. Um, the the postmodern turn of Judith Butler and others that gender and sex are basically performance hadn't really taken hold, not, not among Catholic feminist theologians or others who I was looking at. So that shift, I think, is really significant. And Pope Benedict actually talks about this in his final address of uh, to the Christmas address to the Roman Curia in 2012. It's a brilliant analysis, but he said, he references Simone de Beauvoir, the idea that one is not born a woman, one becomes so um, because of socialization. But now he says, where we are in the 21st century is we've gone to gender is this self-articulation as we become our own creators, as Abigail said. So I think that's a huge shift. Absolutely. So, and you both mentioned this, but I, I want to underscore it because a lot of people still actually think that the debate is, is simply distinguishing between biological sex, which is treated as a real thing, and some social category of gender. Uh, and, you know, I, in fact, the, the uh, gender-bred person, which isn't all that old, maintains that distinction. What people don't know is that that's obsolete. It's actually the gender unicorn that's, that's sort of current. Um, so that both sex and gender, however we understand those, in the, in the current parlance are both either performances or self-identities or, or some, some kind of construct, right? Is that right? Ab okay. Absolutely. And so that, that passed over. Abigail, you wanted to... Well, what's interesting is there, I mean, on the one hand, you have, so you have Butler who's in the background, right? This idea that gender is a construct, it's this performance that we're consciously doing unconsciously doing, sorry, that creates the illusion of something real underneath it. But then one, one thing that's ironic that I see is 
for Judith Butler, I mean, she, she wants to upset categories. But what we're seeing actually is this proliferation of categories that the, the limits of which are very clearly now policed, right? So there's a way in which Judith Butler's theory is in tension with some of the, the developments that have happened more on just kind of the popular culture level. Um, and so I think sometimes you have in, in certain transgender narratives, for example, a much more essentialist understanding of gender. Sometimes you have the hardcore anti-realists that are just like, gender's a construct, I'm just gonna play, whatever. But then you also have people you know, who are saying, no, I actually, my gender is this fixed, innate part of me that doesn't match my body, and my body is what is wrong. So I think those narratives actually conflict with yes. kind of Butlerian anti-realism, right? Because they, they basically say, no, gender's the most real thing about me, exactly. whereas sex is a fiction. So we're seeing these kind of interesting developments happen as these, as these very kind of heady and academic theories trickle down into popular discourse. I mean, I think that's actually where we are, at least in the public imagination, is that um, it's not that gender is replacing sex, it's that your, your gender, understood as gender identity, is the fundamental truth about the person, and the body uh, is, is independent of that. It, it doesn't have any meaning or specific meaning with respect to one's gender identity, but that's the real self, right? right? And that's definitely not Butler, who is much more radical and postmodern. And so this is, I mean, how do you describe that? I think I like the way you put it, that it's sort of a, it's an essentialist turn, but it's not biological essentialism. It's sort of this disembodied soul or something. It, I don't it, know. <laughs> it's an oxymoron, but it's yeah. almost Gnostic essentialism, yeah. right? Because my essential self is not my sex assigned at birth, it's not my body, it's this sense I have of myself as an entity that transcends all of that. So it, it yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a new species of essentialism, I think. Well, it is, and so we're of course here at the Heritage Foundation, and I can tell you where, I'm interested in the intersection of these ideas to public policy, and so some of us here in the building actually been tracing the use of the word gender identity in, in laws and regulations, and it's not defined anywhere explicitly, it's just simply invoked. Um, and many of those who I think are using the term, they're, they're actually presupposing this sort of older account, and so they imagine they're doing something that they don't. They don't quite realize, in my view, that in fact, you know, the, the, um, the progress made, say, in Title IX with respect to high school and women uh, women's sports, right, um, then could actually end up being subverted by being replaced, or if the word sex is defined to include gender identity, given its current understanding, which is what we're going to be stuck with, you actually end up subverting uh, the goals of, you know, earlier feminists. And so I think that's absolutely crucial. But it's hard to tra track this stuff. You know, I mean, if you focus on the intellectual genealogy, you can do that. But p lawyers that are focused on bills, they just see these terms invoked. I wonder what exactly is going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the definition problem is a real problem because gender and gender identity in these in this new meaning are, are making them making their way into law, but they're not clearly defined. Like most of the time, when you look at what gender identity means, it's something like an inherent sense of one's own gender. So it just kind of this is circ is this circle, or you might you might have an an, an a, your sense of self as a man or a woman. So there's also this contradiction where a fixed understanding of man and woman is both denied, but then also appealed to simultaneously. So it really is incoherent, but I think 
I'm worried about the, the legal ramifications here if, we, if, if gender ideology, especially the idea that you can just self-identify as a man or a woman, if that becomes what a woman, especially a woman, means and it's no longer connected to sex, then basically any sex-based legal protections for women become completely meaningless Absolutely. and completely obsolete. And sex segregation, where it continues to exist in our society, it exists for the protection of women and children, Absolutely. by and large. And so as soon as you make those, those kind of boundaries completely porous, um, then you, you create essentially a very gameable system that people can, you know, people who, who want to blur those boundaries for nefarious reasons can easily game. And this isn't just fear-mongering, right? So one of, the, one of the most concerning ramifications I find is in prisons. So, and there are multiple cases, and you can just do a quick 15 minutes of Google research. There are more, already multiple cases of female prisoners who have been raped by men who self-identify as women and who are already, in most cases, convicted of sexual violence, and yet they're, they're allowed into prisons where, where the women who are in there literally cannot go anywhere else, yeah. right? So that situation, I mean, this is happening in the UK, it's happening in Canada, it's happening in multiple places, places across California, the US. California, of course, but yes. also New Jersey and, and several Illinois. states. And Illinois, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, all, just do a quick Google search. You Absolutely. can fact check me on that, but it's, well, it's and we, really, really And we're not allowed to sort of say explicitly what seems obviously to be the case. So we're, we're not, I'm not, I wouldn't deny that some of these prisoners may suffer from gender dysphoria. I don't know, I can't read minds. On the other hand, it's very hard not to notice that it's mostly men wanting to get into women's prisons and women not wanting, right, trying to get into men's prisons. We, that, that suggests, you know, conspiracy rather than mere coincidence, you know, with respect to what's happening here. And that's why it's terrifying and that's why it's absolutely a, a fundamental public policy question. Um, well, Abigail, I want to return to this um, autobiographical element because in your opening remarks you talked about the, the sort of obvious contrast between what you call the gender paradigm and the genesis paradigm. But in your book you say that feminism plays a complicated role in your own faith. You say at one point that, it both, that feminism both led you away from the faith and then led you back to it. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the, the first part of that, feminism, so I, I first I grew up an evangelical Christian, and I um, encountered feminism in college as an undergraduate. And initially, I, I approached feminism by basically taking tools and bringing it kind of into my Christian worldview, right? Um, so I still took divine revelation seriously. I still had a sense of the Bible as having an, a sense of authority. Um, and I just wanted to better understand what that, that voice of authority was speaking in relation to what a woman is and what it means to be a woman. But then there, there was this shift. The deeper I got into reading feminist theory and feminist biblical criticism, the more and more I kind of adopted the uh, hermeneutics of suspicion, which is basically kind of reading everything, whether it's the Bible or any text or social interaction, with this sense that there's some kind of like patriarchal bias at work here and I have to hunt it out, right? So. And once, once you're in that default mode of suspicion, it becomes very hard to, and I was suspicious of God as well, right? So, you know, how can you love or worship someone you're inherently suspicious of, right? So I kind of closed myself off. And again, this wasn't like a conscious decision, like I'm going to spiritually paralyze myself now for the next <laughs> 10 years, you know? It was, I kind of adopted this worldview that essentially closed my heart to, to God's work in my life. Um, and 
So in that way, feminism led me away from Christianity. But also, I think, my, what interested me initially about feminism was this long-standing desire I've had to better understand my dignity as a woman. And that's what first led me to, to feminism. And I thought for a while that, oh, this is where I'll find what, it, you know, what I'm looking for. But ironically, feminism actually has this deep discomfort with womanhood and femaleness, mm. um, even though it purports to kind of represent and advocate for women. And so it was much to my surprise, actually, that I found in the Catholic Christian tradition um, the, the culmination of my quest, I guess, that um, what, it, what it means to be a woman and the ground of my dignity as a woman. And it's, it's a, as a Catholic, I've discovered what I was looking for. It's yeah. terrific. John, you several times make reference to this, uh, the, the, address, the, the Christmas address that Pope Benedict XVI gave to the Roman Curia, I think in 2012, right? Yes. Um, and you mentioned it initially a minute ago, but I want, to, I want you to say more about that because I think it's, it's, it's an amazing and not as well appreciated gem as it ought to be. And you talk about it as, that Benedict deals with this dissolution of nature being and sex in that address. And it's delivered to the Curia, so to the, the, the Holy See bureaucracy, which I think there's probably something significant in that as well. For some reason, Benedict saved some of his most profound remarks for those Christmas addresses over the years. I, I don't know why that was, but this one's no exception. Um, he's, he, he talks about the shift we've, saw, we've seen from gender as a social construct to gender as a personal articulation, but he says what really happens then is we reject the concept of our having a nature as a creature. And as Abigail said earlier, we then become, take the role of creator. So an intrinsic to God's creation of us is the reality of male and female. That's how, that's, that diversity of sex in a unity of nature is part of the way in which we image God, right? As a, commu as a communion of persons. So when we banish that, then we become self-legislating, self-creating subjects who have to articulate for ourselves the meaning of our own existence and identity. Um, and I, so I think it, it really is a very profound diagnosis. And he points us back to a little bit of the intellectual genealogy, but then forward to where we're going as a culture. Absolutely. Well, Abigail, you deal with this in terms of this contrast, again, that you in, invoked here, uh, between the Genesis paradigm and the gender paradigm. Define just briefly the, what those two things are uh, by your understanding. Well, by, by using the word paradigm, um, one of the arguments I'm making is that... You're getting points for quoting Kuhn, right? So <laughs> <laughs> What I'm doing is showing that I'm an academic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, um, but a paradigm is essentially a way of seeing reality. And that's, that's kind of the argument I'm making, that gender ideology is not just it's not just bad because it's an ideology, it's, but it's actually, it's an entire way of seeing all that is. And that the Christian way of seeing reality in the human person is really fundamentally different and is in tension with and at odds um, with, so those two paradigms are, are very different. And I kind of outlined in my remarks the ways in which they're, they're different. But what I'm, what I'm really arguing is that, um, I'm really arguing against this framework and this paradigm and trying to carefully make a distinction between that framework and that way of seeing, and then the people who have kind of been caught up into that way of seeing, who very often are 
um, vulnerable, who are in a lot of pain, who may be attracted to that way of seeing for various kinds of diverse reasons, but then they're essentially funneled into this, this way of diagnosing, I guess, their own, their own angst um, that essentially sets them at war with themselves um, and that ultimately harms them. And so I think it's, I think in a way, like if you, if you listen to some narratives about trans identification, um, like one, there's a desire within that for the, for the unity of body and soul. There's a desire for the body to speak the truth of, of who I am. And that's a good and holy desire. And that's actually a deeply Christian desire. But the problem is the gender paradigm, this framework distorts that. And it basically, it distorts that, it takes that desire and then it responds with a lie that says, well, no, your body is a lie. Your body doesn't speak the truth. And if you just fix this one thing, if you just fix the body, then everything else will fall into place. You know? And you can understand why that narrative would be so captivating. Just imagine if all the kind of problems you have, <laughs> if someone were to say, guess what? I can solve this for one thing, right? Whether it's, maybe it's an adolescent boy who's autistic and just feels like he never fits in socially. And then suddenly, boom, you're in the wrong body. We just need to fix your body. We need to medicalize your body. That's your problem. Right? Or then maybe there's a, a young woman who's very gender non-conforming, likes traditionally masculine activities, and then she's being told by adults who should know better, oh, you should actually really think about your body as being the problem here, and if we just alter your body, then all these longings and all this anxiety and angst and pain that you're feeling will be magically solved. Right? I mean, it's a very intoxicating narrative, and so it's no wonder that it's appealing, but I'm really making the argument that these people aren't bad actually they're being lied to and harmed by this this framework that's a lie. John, what she said reminded me of the term you use, a Gnostic temptation. You made reference to Gnosticism in your opening remarks, but what, what is it about the, you know, the Gnostic uh, way of viewing reality in the human person? Why is that a perennial temptation, do you think? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a, a, a single answer, it's, so, but historians, of, of Christian thought have called Gnosticism the hydra of heresies because you defeat it in one context and it sprouts three new iterations in another. It's been the opponent of the church throughout its history. We see it in the pages of the New Testament even. Um, before the New Testament closes, the, the author of 1 John um, warns of antichrists and says, who are the antichrists? Those who deny Jesus Christ come in the flesh. That's early Christian Gnosticism, threatening the community to which John is writing that letter. Um, that, that impulse to say that the body, matter, the physical world is an illusion, is something to be escaped from, springs up over and over again. It's the Albigensians and the Cathars in the Middle Ages. It's New Age spirituality at the end of the 20th century. And now it's finding a home in this set of ideas that promises, as Abigail was describing, to fix all these uh, issues of identity and pain that people struggle with, people who are gender discordant or people who have a stable gender identity and who come across this set of ideas and suddenly it's problematized. And they say, well, oh, this could fix, this could fix yeah. everything that, that I've, I've always felt was off about myself. 
Well, it, I'm wondering because what Abigail said a minute ago, that we're all longing, the reality is that the human person is this unique hybrid of the material and the spiritual. And so we need an account that takes both of those realities uh, into account, right? Um, that's, that's true of reality as a whole and not just the human person, that it's both, both a real material world and also a real spiritual world. Um, and so perhaps that's what's needed is an account that, that um, accommodates that complexity, but it's tempting always to fall on one side or the other. And we live in a culture which if I were going to say, if anything, the commanding heights of culture are deeply materialistic not spiritualistic. It's not like idealism has made a comeback in any sort of obvious way. Um, and it, perhaps it's precisely the, uh, the sort of, you know, thin gruel of materialism that gives rise to this so that my body, not only is my body not significant, it's entirely independent of my identity. So it's, it's a counter-reaction to what's otherwise, I think, a pervasive materialism, or at least that's my sense. I think that, I think that makes sense. Um the body becomes something to be escaped from. Um, sure. I mean, we see this in transhumanism, right? So people yes. that are otherwise mostly card-carrying materialists living in California, but also think they're going to upload their true self to the internet, right, at the singularity. Hook, hook up There's their some, brain to something yeah. and keep it, yeah. It's because like a, the brain becomes the self, yeah. which is... And it's just the pattern the, in the brain, it turns out. So right. it's a kind of philosophical schizophrenia that makes this sort of hard to nail down, yes. I would think. But, but that's, just to your previous question, that's one of the features of Gnosticism throughout its mm. history. It is absolutely chameleon-like. It can take on the hue and, and texture of anything in its own intellectual environment, um, as long as you kind of keep the, the dualistic core. Yeah. Abigail, in your, uh, early in your book, um, you write, the gender paradigm is feminism's offspring, and it has proven, as we'll see, to be an Oedipal one. So what's your sense of the future relationship between what I call gender ideology and feminism? I mean, you're aware of the fact that there's this, obviously, there's this rift right now, so that mm -hmm. the gender-critical feminists, that is, mm -hmm. feminists who think that females are a real thing, are called <laughs> radical feminists, which I don't really get. But, um, I mean, in feminism, as you know, it is really feminisms. It's not one thing. So what's your sense of the future of this relationship between the gender ideology and, and feminism? Oh man, it's a messy story. It really is an Oedipal story. It very much reminds me of this like Greek tragedy or something where you have like Clytemnestra who gets killed by her son or something. But anyway, her, oh sorry. Um, uh, okay, yes. So why is, why is it an Oedipal one? Um, so feminism has always, again, had an ambivalent relationship to femaleness. So if it, Feminist theory in general has both wanted to assert that women is real and therefore a, an actual class that can be politically defended, um, and also that we should steer clear of any whiff of essentialist ideas that men and women are innately different. Um, so the, the sex-gender split kind of was, a, was an attempt to hold on to those two things. Um, but woman in feminist thought has always been very nominalist, um, in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of um, content to it. It's, it's like, okay, this is, a, this is a category that exists in the world, primarily because it's been socially constructed, but it's nonetheless a real category in that sense, and so we can speak about women. But that's a very weak, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a very weak foundation, I think, to build feminism on. And I think what we're seeing, actually, is that if you do have a fundamentally anomalous understanding of woman, then that opens the door 
for that category of woman to become porous in the way that it has. If you say that woman is really socially constructed, gender is socially constructed, then if you take that idea to its logical conclusion, then that does open the door for it to essentially be this free floating construct that then someone can, who's not female can appropriate. And so there is this civil war that's happening in, within feminism where you have trans affirming feminists versus the gender critical feminists. Um, and I think, I think it's kind of an apocalyptic battle <laughs> in the sense that it will determine whether or not feminism as any kind of um, a, a coherent or meaningful um, movement that actually has an impact on women's lives will persist because if it, if it loses touch with, with femaleness, then um, if feminism is no longer about advocating for human beings who are female, then essentially that, you know, it, it's completely meaningless at that point. Um, and if, if again, they, they concede that woman is simply a construct and that the word woman can name any person who claims it, who identifies as a woman, then essentially, you know, adult female human beings no longer have a name. Very strange. We've been unnamed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So very briefly, I don't want to run out the clock and we want to take questions. So I'm wondering, and John, I'll start with you, but if both of you would say what's your opinion of how to help properly to use the words sex and gender in the current context. And I can tell you a lot of people becoming aware of this say we shouldn't use gender at all and just use sex. I disagree with that, but I I'm just wondering if you have a sense what you tell people, or, and, and Abigail, what you would say. I, I would disagree with that as well. Um, I think a good starting point to think about and answer your question, Jay, would be Pope Francis in Amoris Laetitia 56 says that we can distinguish sex, the physio physical, biological reality of who we are, from gender, the way in which that gets expressed socially and culturally, but we cannot separate them. So anytime we make a hard separation, we've gone off the rails. We've lost touch with a Christian understanding of the human person. But I think it, 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 it's true, and it, it used to be uncontroversial yeah. to say that, of course, we're, we're male or female, but my understanding of that as a 21st century man living in the United States is different from that of an 18th century French woman or a 17th century Nigerian man, right? Because yeah. culture impacts the sure. way we think about and live out our, our maleness and femaleness. So, and there's nothing wrong with recognizing that. So distinguished but not separated, mm -hmm. I think is a good place to start. And obviously there's more to say. I would agree with that, although I would say when it comes to the law, I think it should just be sex. Because the law is really, and this is yes. the debate that's happening right, right now, is that, because I want to maintain the philosophical distinction John just did, but you don't get to do that when you're dealing with regulations necessarily. Right, I think it, just keep it clean, make it about sex, because the law is about really, it should be about material realities. It yes. should be about concrete realities, not people's self-perceptions, right? <laughs> and if, if, if laws are crafted well with sex-based language, then it will protect trans identifying people Absolutely. as well. Like I think there's a way to, you know, or even to have special protections so that trans identifying people aren't discriminated against with jobs or things like that. There's a way to, to protect a certain group of people without completely evacuating sex-based language from the law. But um, yeah, so in that realm, I would say use sex, but 
I think in general, and this is something I have wrestled with because I do think the the malleability of the word gender is is something that's a real asset for people because it it really is this this word that can mean almost anything you want it to mean. Um, but I. So there was a while where I was kind of like, I'm not going to use it anymore, yeah. you know. And it's in the title of your book, though. So, <laughs> so anyway, but I think I think the problem is that the term sex, when we're speaking more just kind of holistically and theologically, um, is is um, so gender has become disembodied, but mm -hmm. sex is too disembedded mm -hmm. because, like John was saying, we are biological beings, but we're also embedded in particular cultures and historical moments, and so how sex is expressed or um, influenced um, by particular cultural and historical moments that should be part of the conversation. And I also think that, um, that the term gender, or even if, rather than sex and gender, just step back from like female and woman, right? Female is, is accurate in terms of my biology, but the word woman captures so much more of a holistic sense of my personhood because it includes a dimension like the historical cultural dimension, but also spiritual, psychological, right? So I think, I think the term gender, when rooted in sex, when connected to the body, not separated, I think it can once again become meaningful. Um, but there's also the pragmatist in me that's like, it's kind of a, it's kind of a mess right now. So just be like really intentional how you <laughs> yeah. use it. And if you're writing legislation, just use sex. Terrific. OK, we have a few minutes for questions. So we you do questions online, but we will start here, but um, if uh, in the back here, but wait for the microphone to give the question. And just make sure it's phrased in the form of a question, Brandon. <laughs> All right, it will end with a question mark. Uh, very fascinating presentation. I was wondering if you, Abigail, could comment on why you think it is that just from the early 2000s when you were talking about the discursive space and people saying, oh, you just can't do that, to now where it's just all the rage where, and this is a fascinating phenomenon, but women are, including the radical feminists, some of whom have spoken here in opposition to gender ideology, are both fighting it so hard, but at the same time, the greatest enforcers, the handmaidens, if I can use that term, of trans orthodoxy are also women. That's I mean, we've got I feel like men doing it at the top, making a lot of money, but on the ground, it's women pushing it. Why is that? Oh, that's a great. Uh, that's a that's a good question. I I do think just in terms of so to date myself here, when I was in graduate school, um, I think Facebook was, had just been created and it was in its phase where you still had it was still connected to your institution, right? So there was like a I was at St. Andrews. It's like there was a St. Andrews Facebook and it was about. <laughs> so that's that's the state we were in, right? So this is before smartphones, before social media. Um, so I do think the technological changes that have happened between now and then have a lot to do with this um, because people, and something we didn't really talk about, but the demographics have also radically changed. So traditionally, um, it would be middle-aged men who would mostly cross-identify with the opposite sex. Now it's mostly young people and majority women, so majority young females. So two massive dem demographic, demographic shifts. And that shift began really intensely around 2014, right? So I think technology, social media, what Jay sort of mentioned, or I think it's about how we're, we're maybe you mentioned, John? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, 
that we're immersed in this online reality all the time, right? Where we create these avatars for ourselves, and that's a very disembodied kind of existence, but increasingly that's where young people spend the majority of their time. And that world, that disembodied world, almost becomes more real um, than, than the, the real world. And so I think that's a huge, that's a huge shift. Jerry, we have an online question. Um, so one of uh, the online participants asked um, if you guys could weigh in a little bit on intersex individuals, um, both generally but also uh, within the Judeo-Christian worldview, any resources scripture um, may have on that. So um, a lot of progressive uh, individuals use the existence of, or, or cite the existence of intersex people as kind of a, a evidence for something like transgenderism. So if you guys could weigh in on that. Okay, so I have a whole chapter on this in my book. I go, because I, I think that's it's an essential question because this is the, the primary reason, or it's one of the, the primary moves that activists will make to basically put you on the defensive. Like, oh, so there isn't a sex binary because inter intersex people exist. So intersex is an outdated and imprecise term that refers to over a dozen different kinds of um, developments or conditions of sexual development that are um, out of the norm. Um, so it lumps them all together and uses one term as if to suggest that there is a third sex or something that's um, non-sexed. So I, I think this is a very dehumanizing tactic because anytime intersex people who it's the better term is disorders of sexual development and the best term is actually condition specific terminology such as um, a man with Klinefelter syndrome right something like that but instead all that complexity is just lumped into this this word intersex and then that that word is never brought up to actually talk about how we can better um, serve or advocate or meet the, the very distinct and unique needs of individuals with DSDs. It's always about making room for any kind of, of cross-sex identification. So it's, it's really used, um, those conditions are used as a political football. So one thing I would say is that disorders of sexual development are variations within the categories of maleness and femaleness. They are not exemptions from those categories. Many of those conditions are actually sex-specific. So only females get vaginal agenesis. Right? Only males experience um, Klinefelter syndrome. And the majority of DSDs do actually not result in sexual ambiguity at birth, but actually only come up maybe during puberty or something. So the, the, the conditions that are, are adver, um, observable at birth are 0.02% are of all life births. So in 99.98% of births, sex is not ambiguous at all at birth. And in those cases where it is, the attention should be on the individual person and what his or her needs are. It should not be about totally upending the, the idea that we're a sexually dimorphic species. Um, John, do you have, the, part of the question had to do with how we should think about this theologically. you have any thoughts? Sure, sure. Um, and my book doesn't have a whole chapter, uh, but I do deal with this in two, two places in the book. Um, we were fortunate a couple of years ago at CUA to have a very good doctoral dissertation written on this topic in light of the theology of the body, which I think gives a really good framework for thinking this through. I, and I would agree with everything Abigail said. Um, this doesn't explode the sex binary. It's a difference within um, the expression of maleness or femaleness that affects a small number of individuals. Um, but what this dissertation suggested is 
the idea of St. John Paul II, the body speaks in its masculinity or femininity. In the case of an intersex person, that speech may be reduced to a whisper. So we have to attune our ears to listen to the body, to read the body more closely, but we can still read the body as male or female, right? But it just, as Abigail said, it reminds us to be attentive to the person because this is, this is a condition that a person deals with. Um, and even there's been a shift within the medical community. It used to be that the advice was to parents for a child born with some sexual ambiguity, we'll just assign a sex and we'll raise them that way. And even the medical community recognized, um, and the, the, the pediatrics, the Association of Pediatric Doctors actually passed policy to state we should in most cases wait until a child reaches a sufficient age, adolescence, adulthood even, to have a say in whether they want any kind of medical intervention to address that, that ambiguity and expression of sexual difference. Because people do better yeah, that way. Absolutely. OK, one final question uh, here. Thank you both, and thank you, Jay. Um, I wonder if in your, your books, or also just in your thinking uh, and talking about this, uh, whether you've taken up the question of vocation um, with regard to this issue, the idea of um, it resonating with something inside of us that we actually do have an inner voice uh, that calls to us to do things or to be things, right? To find your job or your spouse or your calling to religious life or whatever, apostolic you know, goals. Uh, have you taken that up with regard to either the Genesis versus the gender paradigm or the Gnosticism question? So that is something that I think a little bit about in the book. And I think, I think vocation is the right language. Vocations and gifts are rooted in who we are as men or women. Whereas I, when, when I talk about roles, I tend to think of that as more culturally specific and culturally conditioned. But only men can be husbands and fathers. Only women can be wives and mothers. And whether that's act, physical fatherhood or spiritual fatherhood or both, um, those vocations are deeply rooted in who we are as persons, but as Christians, before entering into those vocations, we have a prior one. As baptized, we're called to holiness. And then once we pursue, in response to God's specific call to us, a marriage or religious life or some kind of apostolic work, then that vocation becomes my path to holiness. I'm called to holiness as a husband, as a father. Um, and again, so I think that language is a really helpful way to unpack some of the theological depth that Abigail was referring to of being a man or a woman. Well, we're out of time. Thank you for those of you that joined online and for those of you in person. I want to just remind you also, we've got copies of the books here. And the covers we're remarking look a little bit alike. <laughs> so Unraveling Gender by Tan Books uh, by John Grabowski. It's not available for maybe obvious reasons on Amazon. Um, but you can get it at Tan Books. Uh, just, just Google the name. And then Abigail's book, The Genesis of Gender with Ignatius Books, will be available at the end of May. And I think it pre-order it now. You can pre-order it, order it now. And it's actually. on Amazon. Yeah, and it's on Amazon. So hopefully that will continue. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. Please, please welcome and thank you.